0: My colleague, uh, Reverend Mike Slaughter, just want to remind you, for those of you who are considering membership at Apostles, whether you're online or here, uh, for next Sunday lunch, uh, the deadline is approaching. So if you haven't signed up yet and putting it off, uh, please sign up as soon as possible for the lunch next Sunday after uh, our worship of 10:30. Uh, before I introduce uh, O.S. Hawkins. I want to introduce Susie, his wife. As the saying goes, behind every great man there is a surprise mother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> but in all truthfulness, Susie has for fifty-one years behind this amazing ministry uh, of Dr. O. S. Hawkins. And I want you to greet Susie first and Welcome to the Apostles. It's truly a singular privilege for me to introduce and welcome back to this pulpit a dear friend and a prayer partner. First of all, I met Dr. O.S. Hawkins in 1982. And you know, when you meet somebody that leaves an indelible mark on you, that was one of those times. I've been hearing that name for so long, so finally, in Fort Lauderdale, when I met Dr. Hawkins, who was the pastor of First Baptist Church of Fort Lauderdale, I was really impressed by his love for the Lord and his demeanor and his friendliness. And... um, Just just left an indelible mark. There, he took an average church, and by God's grace and through his love, uh, pastor's love, built it to be a great church. And God used him to really have a landmark in that whole area in South Florida. And then came the opportunity for him to be the hand-picked successor of Dr. Criswell at First Baptist Church in Dallas. Now those of you non-Baptists, you may not understand this, but Dr. Criswell was the Baptist Pope. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. Uh, even a non-Baptist like me, I knew that. It is really a remarkable, remarkable historic church. And after 49 years of ministry, Dr. Criswell, who would he hand-pick to succeed him? Dr. O.S. Hawkins. And so he goes to First Baptist from Fort Lauderdale, and he does an amazing job. But he also was drafted three years later to head up what at that time was known as the Southern Baptist Annuity Board. He's a graduate in business and economy and economics, and and really, even though he has a pastor's heart, he is a businessman. And so he took that. Southern Baptist Annuity Board was the retirement for the Southern Baptist Church denomination. Why would he do that? I'll tell you, he doesn't even know that I know this. His burden and the burden of his heart is to help so many of the older Southern Baptist pastors who retired and don't have much of a retirement, and the widows of Southern Baptist pastors who don't have much of a retirement. And so he takes this ministry, this this business ministry, a few hundred million dollars, and by God's grace, he turns it into Godstone Investment Company, and now is well over $15 billion. (laughs) Amen. Amen. Give God glory. But that's not, you know, the numbers and all that don't tell the story. The story is of the untold number of pastors and widows that have been helped by this work. It's amazing. It's an amazing story. And one day, I'm sure the story, full story, will be told. But right now, you know, very few people know what really has happened and what God did to use His man, a man with a pastor's heart and a brilliant economic mind, to turn this, and the one thing that we, as a church and leading the way, are blessed, is that he opened it up to non-Baptists. <laughs> so the the staff and our church, the church team and the leading the way team, are very grateful to Godstone because they have blessed us with our retirement account. They have done a remarkable job, and for that we are grateful from a, a, a personal. Uh, Situation. So we're very grateful. Right, guys? Right, Richard? And Richard, you? <laughs> and and I, I, I could stand here and tell you so much about this great man of God. And I'm so grateful that he has accepted to come and share uh, with us, for, open the Word of God and share with us. Some of you remember him. He was here a few years ago. But Dr. Oyas, I thank God for you. I value our friendship more than you will know. And I'm so glad you and Susie are here and grace with your presence. Come and open the word for us.
1: Thank you, brother. That was sweet. Thank you. Love you too, pal. Well, thank you for the privilege of being back here and opening the book of God. Let's turn in our Bibles to Jeremiah. As you know, Jeremiah prophesied 30, 40 years before the Babylonian captivity and pled with his people to Turn to the Lord. He's called the Weeping Prophet. We have his translation of his book in our Bibles, but if somehow we had had that original manuscript, uh, I'm sure it would have been stained with tears on every page as as Jeremiah wept and wrote. Uh, I want to say one quick thing. You know, since I left First Baptist Dallas and went to Guidestone, I've been privileged to preach every Sunday all over the country, and every kind of church imaginable, small churches, large churches, all kinds of churches. And there's nowhere I'd rather be than right here. I tell people everywhere that I think Church of the Apostles is one of the most biblically literate churches I ever have gone to and have ever known. And uh, leading the way, you know if you're going to lead the way, you better know three things. You better know where you're going. I don't follow, I'm not influenced or I don't follow anybody that doesn't know where they're going. I don't think you do either. You better know who you are, not try to be somebody else. And you better know why you're here, moved and motivated by a passion and a purpose. And if you had to ask me to describe Michael Yusuf, I would say those words. Uh, He knows where he's going. He's a person of vision. He knows who he is. He's a person of integrity and he knows why he's here. He's a person of purpose. Actually, when you think about it, that's a VIP. <laughs> Vision, integrity, and purpose. Doesn't mean very important person, very influential person. So thank you for the privilege of being here. Let me ask you a question today. What, what motivates you? What gets you up in the morning and motivates you to go about your day? Is it maybe, maybe it's the last self-help book you wrote, read or Maybe you still have some of Zig Ziglar's old motivational tapes that you listen to. What motivates you? I'm convinced that the greatest motivating factor there is, is the fact that there is purpose in your life. That there is design, whether you know it or not, and some of you have never awakened to it, but there is design behind your life. At a well in Sychar, if you remember, when the disciples brought Jesus lunch, he he said, my meat, the thing that sustains me, the thing that moves me, is to do the will of him who sent me. While there's still time, he was moved and motivated by God's purpose, the Father's purpose for his life. The greatest motivating factor that any of us could ever have is this element of purpose, that back behind your life, as the music team just sang, before you were born, there was design there. God had a purpose for your life. You know, we give our Christian testimonies, and basically, when you think about it, they're, they're built around Paul's testimony that he gives in Acts 22, and he gives it again in Acts 26 before Agrippa. And he drives down three stakes in that testimony. The first stake is when, when we're born. The second stake is when we're born again and come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And the third stake is when we die and the assurance we have of eternal life out there. This, Paul built his testimony around these three stakes. When you read his testimony in Acts 22, Acts 26, he says he was born in Tarsus, a Jew of the Jews. He studied at the feet of Gamaliel, uh, the, one of the greatest teaching rabbis of his day. And he talks about then after he was born, what his life was like before he came to Christ. And he tells us how he persecuted believers, that he thought he was doing the right thing. And he, he persecuted Christians. He was en route to Damascus. And then he comes to that second stake and he tells us in Acts 9 how on the road to Damascus, he had a a revelation. God revealed himself to him, and he came to faith and trust in Jesus Christ, transformed his life. And then he tells us what his life was like since that experience in Acts 9. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me in the life I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then in his last letter to Timothy, he talks about that last stake He says about his death, I'm now ready to be offered the time of my departure's hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished the course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge shall give to me in that day, not to me only, but to all those who love his appearance. Now, if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you have a testimony like that. I certainly do. I was born in Fort Worth, Texas, had moral folks, but not church folks in those times. When I was 17 years old, I could count on one hand how many times I'd ever been to church. That was midnight mass on Christmas Eve with my cousins and aunts and uncles. Never heard a prayer in my home. Never saw the Bible open in my home. And shortly before I graduated from high school... A young man shared with me after a basketball game how he'd come to faith and trust in Christ, and I couldn't get away from what he said. He took me to a Bible-believing preaching church the next Sunday. I heard the gospel for the first time and was gloriously trans—I was saved. I love still you use that word. And, you know, it was months after that before I ever heard the word repentance— but I know I repented that day. You know how, because immediately I started loving what I used to hate and hating what I used to love. Things I never thought that I, I, I would love to do. I found myself having my greatest joy in doing, hanging around a bunch of folks that looked like you in church. I found my greatest joy in doing, and since then my life has taken on purpose and meaning. And and I'm going to die one day sooner now than later. And I have the hope and the assurance that I'm going to go to heaven. But here's my question for this morning. What about back there before you were born? Before you ever get to this stake, what about back there before you were born? Do you know that you're going to leave here this morning with a testimony about what God did for you before you? you were born. Now, you didn't exist back there before you were born, except in the mind of an infinite God. And you have a testimony, as, as Jeremiah gives here in chapter 1, verse 5, of what God did for you before you were born. He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. That means I saw you as holy. I set you apart. And I appointed you a prophet to the nation. I assigned you this particular task. So this little phrase, before you were born, modifies four verbs here in verse 5 that we're going to see today. First one, I knew you. God says, before you were born, I knew you. Knew all about you. You know, never one time in the Gospels does Jesus ever come up on a situation and say, wow, that was a surprise. Not, not once. Or never one time has he ever saved the disciple. Whoa, I didn't see that one coming. Did you guys? No. Because he has foreknowledge. He knows everything. Before you were ever born, he knew you. He, he took you from everybody else, as we're going to see in a moment. And he set you apart from everybody. That's why nobody has a DNA like you do. You're indescribably valuable to God. You have a testimony of what what went on in his mind before you were born. He knew you. He set you apart. He appointed you. He assigned you something. There's somewhere, there's something for you to do that no one else can do like you can do. And then he says, I formed you before you were born. I'm the one that did that. It wasn't two little tiny specks of protoplasm that came together with all the intricacies of a nervous system and a circulatory system and a respiratory system and a digestive system. No, I formed you. I did it. I put all that together, and I formed you. So we have a testimony of what God did for us before we were born. Here's the first thing I want to say about this testimony. You can say it. Here's your testimony. You can say it this way. He named me. He named me. He said, before you were born, I knew you. Isaiah in chapter 43 verse 1 elaborates on this and he says, I called you by name before you were born. God knew you before your parents knew you before you came out of that womb and your mother held you up to her breasts and your dad came in and saw you and and those loved ones held you and passed you around, before anybody knew you, God knew you. Everything about you. Before you were born, it says, I knew you. And you know, this verb in the language of the the Old Testament, this, this particular verb is is, uh, is perfect tense. It, th- that simply means it's completed action. It's not continuous action. At a point in time, it happened back there. I, 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 it's, it, I, I knew you back there. I didn't have to get to know you. I didn't have to get to see what your personality was. No, no, no. He knew everything about you before you were born. And this Hebrew word, when he says, I knew you, is one of the most intimate words in Hebrew. It's used of a husband and a wife in an intimate relationship. God knows you like no one has ever known you. Now, you, you didn't exist back there before you were born, except in the mind of this infinite God. So you have a testimony. Of what God did for you before you were born. And here's the first part. of He named me. He knew me. He gave me a name. Way back there before I was born. You know sometimes in the Bible. uh, People weren't called by the name God gave them before. Remember Cephas? Simon? You're going to be called Peter. Petros. A rock. A stone. Remember Joseph? He said no, no, no. Here's the name I have for you. It's Barnabas son of encouragement. Over and over in the Bible, if I had time, I could just walk you through dozens, scores of people who got a new name. It was the name God gave them. I don't know what your name is, but God has given you a name. And before you were ever born, he knew you. He named me. Here's the second thing about your testimony. He claimed me. Think about that. Look what he says. He claimed me. He consecrated me. In other words, that word means to set apart, to treat as holy. Again, it's in the perfect tense. It's past completed action. Before you were ever born, he took you from everybody else who's ever lived, and he took you, and he, ESV says consecrated. The word means to set apart. It literally means to treat as holy. You know, there are not a lot of things God calls holy. You know, we were in a prayer meeting before we came out, and uh, Jonathan was praying. And and that's what he prayed. He prayed, God, you're holy. You're separate. You're you're different. You're set apart. Remember Isaiah when he got a glimpse of the holiness of God in chapter 6? He said, I saw him. And he was high and he was lifted up. He was different. He was set apart. He was high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And and Isaiah said that angelic choir and that antiphonal chorus began to sing back and forth to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You think Isaiah's first inclination was run up to the throne and give him a high five? Or whoop out his iPhone, go to the and say, let me get a selfie here. No. What did he say? Woe is me we get a glimpse of the holiness of God, we see ourselves as we really are. Woe is me. He said, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm hanging around a bunch of folks like that. Why? Because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. John was out on the Isle of Patmos, got a glimpse of the holiness of God in the revelation, the apocalypse. He saw the Lord Jesus and the beauty of his holiness. John's inclination was what? what did he, he said, I fell down at his feet like I was a dead man. This word means to be set apart. It means to be looked upon as holy. You, you know, there are not a lot of things that God calls holy. Like he calls you, like he calls you set apart. Now, there was a room in the temple, in Solomon's temple, that was called Holy. If you remember, it was called the Holy of Holies. It was different. It was set apart. It was different from every other room in the temple. You didn't play volleyball in that room. You didn't set up a card table and play cards in that room. It was different. It was set apart. It was once a year and only once a year, the high priest and only the high priest would enter in through that veil, take the blood of the sacrificial animal and spread it over the mercy seat of the ark, and the Shekinah glory of God on that day of atonement would fill that room. It was different. That's what the word means. It was different. The vessel, the temple vessels, they're called holy. What does it mean? They're separate. You didn't drink coffee out of them. They were different. They were set apart. They were used for temple worship only. The Sabbath, Shabbat, what, what's it? It's called holy. In that Jewish dispensation, you go to Jerusalem today, like many of you have been, and come sundown Friday until that first star appears in the, in the, in the heavens on Saturday night. That day, the Sabbath day, is different from all the other days. Traffic comes to a standstill in Jerusalem. Nobody's driving their cars. Nobody's working. It's a day of rest. It's different from every other day. I'll tell you one other thing the Bible calls holy. The tithe. Do you know that? He calls it holy. What does he mean? He means it's different in that dispensation. It's different. From every other part of your income. One-tenth of your income is to be set apart, and it's different in that dispensation. It's holy. It's set apart, and it is set apart for God's use. Now, that's exactly the same word God is using to describe here when he says, I consecrated you. I set you apart. I, I, I set you apart for a particular purpose Do you see it? To use your life for any other purpose than what God has planned and purposed before you were born for that life is a sacrilege. The greatest motivating factor in life is to find God's will for your life. But that's not all. And to do it. To get in it. To find the purpose that he has for you that's different from everybody else. Who's ever lived? It's an amazing, amazing thought. He claimed me. He claimed me. He set me apart. That's why do you think you have to give your thumbprint when you get arrested or whatever you do when you use your thumbprint. It's because it's different from other people's. You're, you're different. You're set apart. And then look what he says. I appointed you. Now, in Jeremiah's case, he appointed him to be a prophet to the nations. He hadn't appointed me to be that, but I know he's appointed me to another task. There's somewhere that he's assigned, that's what that word means, for you to do. You know, we find this same Hebrew word in in, uh, Genesis 1, 17, where it says that God takes the stars and he appoints them to their places in the heaven, every one of them. Every one of them are assigned a place. And they have run in clock-like precision since the beginning of time. That's the same word he says. He's assigned somewhere there's something for you to do that no one else can do like you can do. You have a testimony today. It's not just about your Christian testimony. It is about what God did for you before you were born. He named you. He knew you, he gave you a name, and he claimed you. He set you apart from everybody else, and he appointed you to a particular task. And then there's one other other testimony you have. He named me, he claimed me, and then he framed me. Before you were born, he says, I formed you in the womb. I did it. I formed you. And here the verb tense changes. It's no longer perfect tense. It's no longer completed in, pa- in the past. Here it's in the imperfect tense in Hebrew. What does that mean? It just means it's continual action. He didn't just form you in the womb and stop forming you. He keeps forming you just like we sang a moment ago, like the potter with the clay forms and fashions you. Circumstances in life that have that have happened to you that 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 nothing about them were good was the hand of God forming and fashioning you, conforming you into his image. We were talking, the pastor and I were talking last night about our grandkids. I've got a grandkids going to college. He's 18. He's six, five. He's, a, he's on his way to Baylor. And when he was three years old, he was sitting in my lap in my study in Dallas and his parents were in California, and we were keeping him. He's three, and he says, Poppy, what's that on the desk? And I, like an idiot, I said, it's a letter opener. I let him hold, hold it, and next thing I know, it's sticking in his left eye. In my lap, he went through several surgeries. I went through hell, literally. The whole family, from his three years old to 12 years old, the kid had to wear a little contact lens because he lost his lens, and and he had to go home after school every day and patch for two or three hours. And, but, you know, we watched God forming and fashioning us through those days, forming and fashioning that little boy into such a godly young man who, who learned patience and trust. When he was 12, we were able to sew an interocular lens in there. Now you, could, you just made academic all-state in basketball and got a big academic scholarship to Baylor, and you could never tell anything has happened. But, yeah, thank you for that. I agree. But my point is, God didn't stop forming me in the womb. He didn't stop forming you in the womb. Like a potter and a clay, he continues that work. And some of you here today with a heartache, with a burden, with a situation, with a circumstance, it didn't take God by surprise. You can use that for him to fashion, to form. That's why Romans eight twenty-eight is a family secret. Most people quote Romans eight twenty-eight and they say all things work together for good to those that love the, and leave off the first phrase. But you'll never understand it unless you know the first phrase. It says, for we know. Lost world doesn't know that, but we do. We know that God can take all things and work them together for good. To those of us who loved him so you have a testimony he framed me like a potter squeezing the clay uh, you say well all that's old testament well yes but what about ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 but what about verse 10 we all know ephesians 2 8 and 9 for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it's a gift of god not of works lest any should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk therein. You are God's workmanship. You know, that, that Greek word, we, we transliterate an English word from that Greek word, workmanship. It, the, in Greek, it's poema. We get our word poema, poem, from that word. You're God's poem. You're God's creation. You're God's work of art. There's nobody like you. He set you apart. He formed you. He fashioned you. And he's still farming you somewhere you fit. You know, when we're talking about Jackson going to college, my grandson, when his mother went to college, we were still down in Fort Lauderdale, and she went to TCU in Fort Worth where I went. And uh, it's 1,500 miles away from Fort Lauderdale. We got her out there. Like all parents, we're getting her into the dorm and everything. And so Susie has this box that she has there. It's a little pedestal table. I hate it when my wife gets something that's not already assembled. I hate that. And asked me to assemble it. Well, on this this was a little pedestal table. You just put, a, put the legs down on it. It had four screws you screwed into it just a little pedestal table wasn't much to do with it so she said she gave me that task while they were putting everything up and everything well i i looked at it and i, I figured out i know how to do this so i got it all put it out there went in there and got a kitchen knife they had those phillips screws so little with the cross on it and I always had that kitchen knife, and I was trying to get and the end of that knife bent all the places. My hand fell off of it and skinned up my knuckles. In a minute, Susie walked in. She had a little tool chest there, and she pulled out a Phillips screwdriver, and she tossed it over to me here. And I won't say exactly what she said, but she instructed me to use it. <laughs> I took that Phillips screwdriver, and when I put it in that screw, it felt so good. And, and it tightened down. And, it, and I could tighten it real tight. Oh, it felt good. And I felt so good about myself. And I, I took the second one, and the third one, and the fourth one. And, and that screwdriver, way back there somewhere, somebody had designed that screwdriver. And it was doing what it was designed to do. God has appointed you to do something. Somewhere there's somebody to reach for Christ that nobody can reach like you can reach. Somewhere there's some job to do that nobody can do like you can do. Because you have a testimony of what God did for you before you were born. He knew you. All about you. Nothing you can do is going to take him by surprise. He knows all about you. And he still loves you. And incidentally, do you know that when you when you realize all this, that 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 God has formed us in the womb, it brings a new dimension to all of the abortion debate. Susie's on a on a on a uh, uh, pre- a pregnancy center board in Dallas. Most of what we talk about is what's happening in the present. You know, we want to save those little babies' lives, and then what happens in the future? We, those moms, we want to be able to help them recover and find the forgiveness of God. But what about the past? Nobody ever talks about the fact that this scourge upon our nation deals with God's purpose and God's plan. And it brings a whole new dimension to it. Some people think that life begins... After the baby is born, because the Bible says he breathed into the breath of life. Some think it begins when the the baby is is viable, whatever that means, outside the womb. Some people believe it means when the baby's heart starts beating. Most people would say, no, it's at conception, when the seed of a man and the egg of a woman come together. But it's not. It begins way back there in the counsel of God. Before you were born, I knew you and I set you apart and I pointed you to a task and I'm never gonna stop forming you and fashioning you and molding you and making you as you yield to me to my perfect will for your life. So what are you doing about the fact that you have a testimony of what God did for you before you were born. He knew you. He knows you. Every thought you've ever had, everything you've ever done, and yet this great God, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've done it, the grace of God reaches out to you. And you know, Roman, Paul says in Romans that it's the kindness of God that leads us to Repentance. It's got goodness and kindness that comes to you where you are this morning and leads you to repentance. It's his love that constrains you. Why? Because he knows you. And because there's something for you to do that he set you apart. He's assigned you to a task and oh how he desires for you to find it. That you might say with Jesus, my meat The thing that sustains me is to do the will of him who sent me. And you know what? When you find that will for your life and do it, it'll feel so right. You'll feel so good about yourself because you'll be in the middle of the Lord's will for your life. Would you make that prayer that Jesus prayed in Gethsemane's garden your prayer this morning? Father not my will any longer, but your will be done. It may be that you're here today and you never have come to that second stake in your testimony. You've never come to a place where you know Christ as your personal Savior, had your sins forgiven, had Christ to come and live in your life, take up residency in you. It's like the Bible says it's like passing from death unto life, from darkness into light. You say, well, I'm just not sure whether I've ever had a conversion experience or not, how could you pass from darkness to light and not know it? How could you go from death unto life and not know it? It may be that some of you need to pray that prayer. When you pray, your will be done, that you come to know Christ as a personal Savior. Transfer your trust from yourself to Christ alone. Let him forgive you of your sin and begin the great adventure for which Christ created you. In the first place. What a testimony you have of what God did for you before you were born. Would you make this your prayer? Father, not my will, but your will be done. Seal these words, Lord, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.